The Middle East has a new story to tell, and this is From Mina to the World. And I'm your host, Amir Farha. I've been investing in startups since 2005. More recently, I co-founded Beko Capital and now Co2 Ventures, a seed stage VC focused on investing in incredible founders in the Middle East at the earliest stages of their journeys. I've been involved in backing extraordinary companies founded by amazing people. And over the years of investing, I've found that I love understanding the human side to entrepreneurship. I love hearing the stories from people that faced and surmounted huge challenges. And I love championing underdogs who are against the odds of success. For the longest time, the MENA region has been misunderstood. Today, we are creating a new narrative, a new voice that harnesses our strengths and is a driver of our future. The Middle East has a new story to tell, and this is From MENA to the World. So today, we're lucky to have uh, Ala Dudin with us. Uh, She's the founder of Bit Oasis, and this is probably... I really enjoyed uh, recording this episode. Ala talks about her childhood and her rebellious side, as well as like going and navigating in the crypto world far earlier than anybody, coming close to near death a few times and making it out now by being the first regulated exchange. And uh, she just got some really amazing insights for founders and talks about the persistence that you need to really go through this, especially the delusional persistence, which is something that hopefully most of the founders watching have and continue to do some really exciting things. So we hope you enjoy the episode. Thanks, Hala, for joining me today. Uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk about yourself, but in a, in a hopefully a, a nice and casual way. So, you know, I always ask people this question as a starting point because I feel like it it's like an introspective one. So like if you had to describe yourself to anyone or your audience or, you know, peers how or friends, how do you describe yourself? Like what words would you use or sentences? Ooh, okay, interesting question. Uh, well, first, I'm happy to be here and, and, and thanks for uh, inviting me over for, for the podcast show. Uh, how would I describe myself? Um, that's an interesting one because usually like, People say, oh, how would your friends describe you? But I think the question of how you describe yourself when like someone is like so self-critical, it becomes like even more of a challenging question yeah, to answer. Yeah. Okay, so, so I, I, can, I can start with like, you know, recently what I've been more kind of realizing about myself and like what I've become more self-aware of, uh, of, of like what defines, you know, me as a person and hence how I describe myself. I think someone who enjoys a challenge, someone who is really likes to kind of dive deep into things, so enjoys, which I, I think it's a it's a a product of enjoying a challenge, and then um, I think I think someone who's uh, also like um, caring and and sharing, although it sounds like a cliche, but like yeah, like enjoys that human uh, element of things, like you know, being social and like you know fostering relationships and 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 reciprocating. So yes, yeah, so I think those are the three things that I when I like were self-reflecting, almost to an extent it was like very self-critical, but like let's kind of go back into more like a balanced approach. I would say it's like those three things that I feel like as a human probably makes uh, makes up like the majority of of who I am as a character. So, yeah. Wow. <laughs> That's a really interesting uh, set of answers. So I guess, so I also want to take a look on the self-critical side because I think everyone is their own biggest critic, right? Like I, I do that a lot to myself. So I'm I'm always curious about everyone else's uh, journey, life journeys and how they think about it because it's uh, it can be limiting, but it's also like, uh, you know, empowering if you if you're able to leverage those things. So let's leave that, or maybe you can talk about the self-critical part. Like, what what do you think? You're, what do you think? Your uh, your I guess limiting is it limiting beliefs or whatever? Just anything that comes to mind when you think about that. I I always believe um, that what makes someone uh, successful is the same trait that also uh, it's almost becomes like their enemy because I think what makes someone successful almost always it's like an extreme form of a trait that depending how you like employ it in a situation, it either works to your advantage or, uh, you know, you're kind of like shooting yourself in the foot. And I feel like those are the same things that like 
you know, if you take like the founder of Uber, you know, like to some extent, how aggressive he was, like kind of made him successful. But at the end of the day, it, it actually what led to his demise. And and I see like in different examples where, you know, that same trait that made you successful is probably the same trait that if you're not very aware of it, will end up kind of, you know, putting you down. Man, that is a, a totally buy into that. Okay, so what is your trait? Uh, <laughs> I, I think it's really that like being uh, conscious and self-critical, um, self-aware, I think, is like the balanced way of saying it. And then the extreme of that is being self-critical, right? Yeah. Like to an extent where like it almost becomes like, you know, handicapped in, in some sense. I think there's like a number of traits, but like the self-critical one is something that I think to a large extent is a good one, even at an extreme, because then that's where you learn and reiterate and relearn and, and all of that. But then if it gets to a stage where you, it's not actually producing action, then that's where you're like, okay, you need to stop and assess how you're like really looking like at yourself. So like it, it, in some ways you want to use it as a tool to drive more like action and improvement versus, you know, kind of putting you down and, and, and affecting your self-esteem. And I think it all kind of comes down to like, you know, how I was like raised and my mom is like a super perfectionist. And we're going to go into that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so yeah. So, but I think it's awareness. Like, it sounds like you're quite aware, which I think is one of the best qualities for any founder and even an investor, to be honest. Self awareness is, is key. So, when you talk, when you look at your childhood and you were just saying about, about your mom, I mean, I always think that a lot of the things that you described, you know, your patterns or your, your, let's say, uh, beliefs systems are a function of like, your conditioning and your upbringing and stuff. So if you don't mind telling me more about that, what it was like, that would be awesome. I have like different memories of how my childhood was. And and, and to some extent, like uh, in some situations, I recall some things and other situations, <laughs> I like recall like the, like the other kind of, you know, bad stuff. Uh, but no, in, in total, I think when like um, I, I hit 30 and then, well, now I'm like, you know, close to 33, but like in the last couple of years, um, I, I really almost kind of got into a situation where like I'm doing a 360 assessment <laughs> of, of myself and and eventually you end up digging deeper into your childhood, right? In your upbringing to really understand why are some of the things I'm doing right now, I'm like doing it this way. And it's almost like you said 100%, it's the conditioning, right? That, yeah. that you were like kind of raised with and, and all of that. And a lot of it is nurture, it's not nature actually. A lot of these things, I'm actually very thankful of like my mom and my dad like, you know, high ethics, right? Like also like great work ethic is like, you know, if you're going to do something, do it very well and, you know, all of that. But also like the perfectionism part of things, which also becomes very taxing on on someone. Uh, and it's almost like there was always like a high standard, right? Like, you know, the way you eat and the way you dress and the way you present yourself. But then also like your grades and, and how you're, you know, performing, how you're scoring. And then compared to like, I don't know, your peers and your sisters and, you know, your cousins. And I think it's something like Middle Eastern in the sense, like, to some extent, your self-worth is really tied <laughs> to, you know, your your accomplishments and your grades and, you know, which is a great thing because your parents always want you to succeed. But for some reason, I think, you know, it was me versus my other sister. So we're like actually five sisters and I'm like the middle child. And I think my parents probably early on realized, okay, you know, we we've got like a smart kid here among like the five sisters, not like trying to say like I'm smart or any, any of that. But I think like I was very, I enjoyed challenges. And, and part of the challenge was like, I really always wanted to like, you know, score and, and make sure I have good grades and then be part of like the school activities and like the art clubs and the math clubs. And, and I think my parents got so excited about this to an extent that like, they kept kind of pushing me even more. And to an extent, like if I get an A and it's not an A plus, it's like, why is it not an A plus? Or, 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 do you know, like it, it was that it was constantly that. And I think that ultimately built that conditioning where, you know, it's almost like what you do is not good enough. You always have to be seeking like something better. It almost kind of gets tied to who you are as a person. You no longer differentiate between, you know, who you are uh, professionally or who you are, I don't know, like say academically and then who you are as a person. And I think it's just only recently that I started kind of realizing that like, no, you're actually different people. You're not one person. And, and that's like your metric, right? That's what I was actually trying to do is like kind of slice up my life and add kind of like KPIs to it <laughs> in a sense where like, let's be methodical about this. Wow. Um, but then what I realized is like, you're almost just like focusing on one area because it's almost like that was the environment that you were 
part of or raised or kind of been conditioned to yeah. kind of optimize for. And then everything else, I guess my parents just kind of figured out, oh, you know, like as a normal person, you're just going to go out and then, you know, like, I don't know, become a, a social person and then have just a normal life. But actually, I think what, what I realized is like almost every part of yourself needs to some extent, depending what you're prioritizing, a lot of work to like, you know, be a good person or be a good partner or be like, I don't know, a good CEO or a good founder. It takes like a lot of a lot of work. But also what's really good is that if you work on yourself in one area, it almost like trickles down to everything else. There's that saying, it's like the way you do one thing is the way you do everything. And I and I believe that because if you're a good person work-wise and like you have a high work ethic, it almost becomes, I mean, obviously there's different examples, you know, on that, but I think it all starts with you being a good human. And if you work on that foundation, almost everything else you do will, 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 will get impacted in a good way. So, so I always try to kind of, you know, use that rule where what is like the one thing or like two things that if I improve on, it's almost like high leverage, right? You want to kind of find the things that if you improve on them, there's That's high the leverage and yeah. it affects everything else in your life. So it almost like tried to get into that exercise, like fundamentally on a human level, what are like the two or three things I should work on right now that are high leverage areas and then it'll like make me improve or make me better at like three, four other things. Um, That's amazing. So Sorry, I'm going I'm <laughs> to cut you off because I think leverage, yeah. is, leverage is an amazing concept that I only realized about it, you know, how you can really use it yeah. uh, today in life, you know. And I think we are lucky in that our world in, in the sense of technology is probably the most impactful in terms of leverage you can use to really create impact but going back a second because i'm also a middle of three boys oh wow and so <laughs> this is not the first time i bring this up because it seems as though a lot of founders are middle kids really well so far i've been speaking to a couple that are from you know the ecosystem and i always am curious you know like the way i look at it not to go deep onto the subject but it's like you're always in comparison with everything, right? You're yeah. like the benchmark, and you generally don't. You're never going to be as good as the no. in certain things with your elder sisters, and you'll be better than your younger ones, maybe, or in my case, my younger brother because he's six years younger. So, but but that reference point would make you feel like you're never good enough, right? Yeah. And you always need to, you know, push harder. And I think it's your strength, but. Like you said, on the self-critical thing, your biggest weakness, at least me, that's my probably, I'd say, my weakness is I always think I'm not good enough, but it makes me do things that I would never, I, would, I push myself to the limit to try and solve that problem. So it's, it's and, I, and I feel like I only became aware of that literally when I was also 33, like five, six years ago, like, you know, and that manifested itself in into many different patterns that I think were negative, but now moving towards positive and they have that leverage and impact because when you behave with those positive patterns it can really really impact everyone around you so yeah. love that but i guess <laughs> before we go there like like because i think there was some insights there but i mean you know i guess growing up then how did you think about your life choices or when did you really take control of your life because arab families are generally quite controlling in where they send their kids to school what to study and you're a woman, not that, I mean, I think that's a bit more even. Yeah, difficult. but culturally, yeah. yeah, 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 exactly. Like the norm, right? Yeah. So that's a very good question. And I think, I never really realized it, but my, my dad one time told me, you almost started taking your own decisions around like 15 or 16. But I've never actually realized that I was taking my own decisions. But one thing, though, that I'm very thankful actually to my mom and my dad, we've had like a, an atypical upbringing in the sense like we've never had an authoritarian kind of upbringing in the sense like my mom and my dad were always our reference points, but they were never there dictating certain rules. Okay, you have to do this. No, you don't have to. Do like, And there wasn't like punishment as such. Like we didn't have that kind of upbringing, but it was always like, all right, this is, you know, that's what's best for you to do. There's always like some form of negotiation. We actually turned out to be like really kind of like, you know, calm, uh, you know, agreeable kind of kids. And, and we never really had like problems as such. You know, obviously every kid has their own problems, but but we never really, I feel like, you know, strayed away from like the right path, if you yeah, want to put yeah. it in that way. Um, you weren't too naughty, Annie. You weren't like exactly, that. Yeah, okay, yeah. yeah. But to some extent, we were still like rebellious and stubborn and, and you know, all of that. Um, but I think like my my parents always created that space where you can negotiate, you can be who you are as a person, 
and you can you, you know you can you can do your own choices so long as you're not affecting yourself like negatively or like your your I don't know let's say your future your career any of that so around um like the age of 14 or 15 I wanted to change schools because I wasn't so happy with like the level of um I thought like my teachers weren't really good so I went to my mom and my dad and I was like I want to change schools I was like you know 13 or 14 I can't actually like 100% 100% remember and then my dad was like why do you want to change schools like all your sisters in this school and you know we think it's pretty good like you know everyone's doing well I was like no 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 because no. I was starting my O levels at that point this is like the IGCSEs so 15 probably 15 yeah, probably 14, 15 yeah, exactly okay. and then I was like no no I want to change to another school because there's this teacher and everyone is like getting like B's and C's on the subject but I think they're A students and my dad was like okay so what do you want to do so I started talking to like other friends in other schools and then did like this whole kind of like research on why I should move to this new school and why it would be better for me because I need to like do like, you know, have straight A's. And then my dad wasn't convinced and then convinced my mom. And like there were like series of meetings (laughs) between my mom and my dad and I until like they got convinced. And then I moved to the other school. Wow, they listened. That's 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 amazing. Yeah. No, no, they're actually like if you build the case. Like, it's always been, like, uh, you know that Jeff Bezos rule, like, uh, disagree but commit? Mm. Like, my mom and my dad, like, it's it's funny. They, they have this where, like, okay, we don't agree, but it sounds like you have a good case. So let's, let's, let's try it. Love and it. then I moved to the new school. And then, actually, a year afterwards, I was kicked out. And the wow. reason uh, I was kicked out, I think I was, like, the, the new school that I went to was, like, super, like, apolitical, like, secular. Like, you know, you're just there studying and like that's it and then the school I was in before was like a bit more like cultural and then it allowed like kind of more like you know we had debate clubs and 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 it was I think more nurturing on like the you know human side and I think like there was some point where like I really pissed off like the the school administration because I was like I started like a debate club and like a political club and then like a lot of kids like uh, it's like I don't want to kind of get into the details of that but it got to a point where they were like okay we, we can't have this kid <laughs> causing a lot of issues and at some point there was like a protest wow. <laughs> and, and and then the principal uh, honestly the principal didn't actually consult the school's committee but she just decided this is like a kid that's causing us yeah that's yeah. causing us a lot of problems and we need to like send her to a different school and then I had my file and then I said like you know kind of like uh, dismissed or whatever it is <laughs> and then I was homeschooled <laughs> for four weeks you were expelled from school expelled wow. from school exactly and then I was homeschooled for four weeks and then you know week one my dad was like look this is not going to work we're going to have to move you to a different school and I was like no no I didn't do anything wrong I'm going to have to go back to my school. And he's like, no, no, you don't understand. You've got your O-levels and you've got your exams at the end of the year. You're going to have to go back to school. And um, anyway, back and forth. And there was like a big story around it. And like the minister of education in Jordan also stepped in and, and all of that. Anyway, I, I went back to school after four weeks, basically. Like the school administration. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the homeschooling was basically me calling my teacher at the end of every day asking her what like you've covered in like different subjects and she was telling me what we've covered and then I had my books and I just like kind of studied and then I'll talk to like my other friends and guys how do you like solve this <laughs> and then like I'll meet them after they finish school and we'll do like like mini study groups anyway it, it was it was fine so for someone who got expelled I mean you you studied hard as well yeah yeah, 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 yeah. so it was like I guess that's an interesting lesson to have early on and then what happened with school so, so so they realized, you know, they've done a mistake and all of that. And then they, they brought me back. And um, like there were several people who also stepped in. It, was, it wasn't like a huge scandal or any of that. But I think like people, like the committees or whoever on the board in the school didn't realize that the principal just took that decision on her own. Um, I, I think there were like several other stuff they weren't happy about. So anyways, they actually like ended up moving her to like, I don't know, like a different department. And then they had like a new principal. Wow. I don't think it was drama, my case. Huh? Drama. Okay, let's, <laughs> leave, let's not go there. Let's not go there. But let's, let's just go exactly. back. Let's, let's go back to. Um, okay. So you go through this journey at high school, kind of rebellious, actually got expelled, homeschooled. Pretty interesting sequence of events it's like quiet rebellion that's the thing like i was oh, never like an angry yeah. child i yeah, was yeah, just yeah. like i'm just doing my own thing and yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly but you were different and that kind of stuff <laughs> probably so, yeah and so and so i guess like what do you just quickly if you don't mind sharing like what do your parents do 
Uh, so my dad uh, is a, a businessman. He's always been like starting, you know, his own businesses with oh, like so he's an entrepreneur. He's an entrepreneur, exactly. Um, and uh, so his background is is uh, he's a pharmacist and optometrist. So he's done like a double major. He studied in Spain and then moved back to the region. And uh, you know, he's got his own story in terms of like different countries that he lived in. Okay. And, um, and I think partly this is probably why our upbringing, also as like you know females in the Middle East, is quite unconventional. <laughs> to yeah, some yeah, 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 yeah. So my mom did English literature back in Saudi. She worked as a translator for for a while, and then when she had us, she just decided to like focus on like family upbringing. Yeah, especially five five daughters is a lot. Yeah, yeah, I know. And but honestly, in in my view, she's like the best like kind of like mother. Um, like yeah, in in, in my head. So. Amazing, amazing. <laughs> yeah. Okay, and so now you go. Let's go back to your before university. How did you make your choice around like? You know what degree to study? What did you study in the end? Um, I did electronic engineering in Birmingham in the UK. What was the reason why you decided to go and do electronic engineering? So I actually wanted to study physics. I like sciences in general, and I was really good at math and physics. So, so I kind of knew what I was good at. I, I didn't enjoy like chemistry, biology, blah, 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 and all of that. And then I was like, well, I went to my dad, and I was like, I want to study abroad, and he was like, no, just do your bachelor's in Jordan. And then you'll do your master's because I was like 17 at that point. I was really young and this whole kind of school thing happened like a couple of years back. And then my dad was like, all right, this is like still like a very immature kid. We can't like send her yeah. <laughs> to study internationally. And then I was like, no, 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 but I want to study like abroad. And, and then by the way, there was this whole kind of negotiation as well that went into that. And then the deal was if I would go study abroad, it has to be engineering, like my dad is not going to send me to study abroad to do like physics. Okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> but the deal was that like I'll go for one semester so long as I register in a university in Jordan and I have a seat. Because my dad was like, well, if you go for one semester and you don't like it, you know, at least you have a seat in a Jordanian university. So you're not like skipping or losing a year. And I was like, OK, deal. Good compromise. Yeah, done. Uh, I'll go register in Jordanian university. I register in a UK university. I'll do one semester. So it was like September until like December. So like, you know, the winter, yeah. you know, semester. And then I'll come back and then we'll discuss how 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 it is. Uh, and I and and I did and and then my dad was like, Okay, are you coming back? And I was like, No, this is amazing. <laughs> 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 I'm not coming back. Your freedom, like, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, so it was my dad basically saying, Look, if I'm gonna say yes to this, you're gonna have to do engineering. But also it was a good choice because Studying engineering also, you know, introduced me to different ways of thinking that if I've done physics, for example, probably, I mean, you, you would never really know, but You'd never I think know. Yeah, but choice, I, yeah. I guess it's interesting also because I studied in the UK, the, the challenge I find with the system there is that if you're not sure what you're doing, it's quite an immersive degree. You don't have many options to study around other subjects like in the US. So you must have liked that subject enough to actually enjoy the semester and continue, right? Yeah, so interestingly, in semester one, so I did all the like, you know, engineering, whatever courses and all of that. And then my electives were in the physics department. Okay. And then I, I went back to my dad like semester two. And I, I remember like calling him and actually like it, it's a very vivid memory because I was like walking around the city hall like, um, you know, in, in Birmingham. And I was like, I think I want to switch to physics. Like I like the electives more. And he was like, look, you said that you don't want to come back. Okay, I'm fine with that. But like the deal is still through and like, you know, the, if, if the deal continues, then you have to do engineering and you're going to have to do the full course. And I was like, all right, OK, fine. <laughs> so, <laughs> okay, fine. Like you can't walk back from what you committed to. That's yeah. the deal. <laughs> so, was your sister, were your sister, other sisters actually, were they allowed to, or allowed? Like, did they go abroad for their They study? did their master's, not their bachelor's. Um, but, uh, you know, they took that choice as well. Like that was what they wanted to do. It was OK, fine, do it, but with conditions. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Especially with your track record at that point. <laughs> yeah, which, which actually probably like it worked out very well. And no, I, agree, I think it was I like agree. the good, you know. That's interesting. Okay, so then you graduate. I guess you need a work permit to work in the UK, I imagine. So that what happened there? What happened next? So I finished my degree and then I applied for jobs and I wanted to do like consulting, uh, you know, either big four or consulting companies. I got a, a job offer from Ernst & Young, their IT advisory service line. And I got so excited. And I remember actually the first person I called was like my dad. Uh, and then he was like, all right, so I guess you're not coming back then. I was like, no, I don't think so. <laughs> So we had like every semester, there's like a a, a reflection, you know, like yeah, session moment. that we do. Yeah. Are you coming back or not? No. <laughs> so 
years. <laughs> so yeah, I ended up uh, doing like around three years in ENY. And then I got so like sick of it, honestly, like working in a corporate environment. It was fun being in London. And then I called my dad and I was like, yeah, I think I'm coming back now. <laughs> wow. I guess why consulting? Because I feel like I remember when I graduated, I just applied to all kinds of jobs. I still didn't know what I wanted. And I did computer science, which is, I wouldn't say it's the same as electrical engineering, but it's within the domain of like, you can do pretty much yeah. many options right in front of you. So what was the, was it just consulting because everyone around you were doing consulting banking or was it like you actually think um, it's a good place to step into your career? I, I, I didn't actually know. I was, I was really young at that point. I was probably 20. I think when I went to the career center, like everyone who was like smart in my like course were applying for investment banking because there was like a lot of quant trading also that's been happening. And then they wanted like a lot of engineers to exactly. you know apply for that. And then consulting because IT consulting was like a really big thing at that point. So I just kind of like I, I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I just like went with what like the smart people are doing and then ended up just yeah. doing that. Yeah. And then, then moving moving to Jordan must have been a big change. Yeah. How was that? It was depressing. <laughs> and I think, like, I realized that I don't like working, you know, in the city, in London. I like London, but I didn't want to continue living there. Uh, I realized, like, working in a corporate is not my thing. There were times where I just couldn't fit in, like, a corporate culture uh, at all. And then um, I was like, well, I'll just leave my job and figure out what I want to do. And I knew that I don't want to work in a, a corporate environment. So I went back to Jordan and I didn't actually apply for jobs or work for like a full year, I think, like maybe like 10 months. And I remember every morning, like my dad would wake up and he's like, what are you doing? And I was like, oh, I'm just going to go like paint <laughs> or like something <laughs> like that. And he's like we, like, we didn't send you to like study abroad. And you spent three years working in London to like sit and paint for eight months. <laughs> And you know, like how Arab parents are like. Your dad sounds like a character, by the way. I'd love to meet him. Anyway, yeah. yeah my mom was so so sympathetic about it. She was like, "Oh no, but you know, she was away for seven years." Yeah, she she like, loves that you're there. She's just happy yeah, you're there. Yeah. Exactly. But my dad was like, "What the hell are you doing?" It's <laughs> like go find a job. So, oh man, That's so yeah. And then, uh, well, I did like a, a couple of like volunteering stuff, and then I really didn't know what I wanted to do. Yeah, honestly, like it was a bit depressing for me as well. And is that when you worked, went to Aramex? Is that when you started at Aramex or was that? Yeah, so it was, so I did like a, a couple of like uh, volunteering stuff uh, with Jordan River Foundation and, you know, things like that. And then I was like, okay, I, I like, I need a real job. Uh, and then that's how I met um, actually one of the, uh, so it was, she's a friend of a friend, uh, Reem Khoury, who like we're still super close actually until now. She was working with Fadi on a number of things. Uh, so she was reporting to him directly, uh, working on like from philanthropy to like investing in social entrepreneurs to like liaising with like, I don't know, Wanda, yeah, Randur, just to, yeah, 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 exactly. Fadi yeah. exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, founder of RMX. And then she wanted to move to like a different job. I, I, she was actually starting her own uh, social impact consulting company. I don't know, somehow my CV got on her desk and she was like, okay, that sounds like a cool person. You know, we should meet. And then I met her and she was like, okay, so what do you want to do? And I was like, honestly, like, I don't want to work in a corporate environment. I don't want to work in a nonprofit. And, and uh, I don't want to go like back to London. And I did have at that point uh, an admission letter from LSE to do my master's. Because I was like, all right, I'm just going to like apply for everything and, and figure out what my like chances are. And, and at that point, the admission letter was like for a September admission. And I think around that time, it was like, uh, we were like summertime, so I, I needed to make a decision quickly. My dad was totally not like on board with the fact that I'd like go back to London because he was like, look, you know, stay in the region. There's lots of stuff happening. You know, you can go to Dubai. You can, you know, stay in Amman. You can go to like Qatar. So a lot of people were like, you know, going to the Gulf at that point. That was like in 2000, maybe 13 or 2012. And he was like, but stay in the region. There's lots of stuff, lots of stuff happening. And, you know, you can find a job. And um I met Reem and then I, I was like, okay, that sounds like a cool job. It's like everything and nothing, right? And like you do like bits, you know, here and there and, and you work with like really interesting people working with Fadi, obviously. And, you know, your Fadi is a great role model and yeah, all of yeah, that. Yeah. And, and she was like, okay, so here, here's the deal. Like come join. We'll overlap by six months. I'll start like handing over certain projects for you. And then let me know what you're more comfortable handling. And then the other stuff, maybe like we can have other people like in RMX or Ruwad or, you know, like the other 
nonprofits that was under Fadi, like for, for people to handle. And I was like, okay, cool, let's let's, let's give it a go. I think I'm always like, okay, let's give it a go. Let's go. Yeah, <laughs> you're, you're still at that age though. You were at an age where you were experimenting. Yeah, so exactly. Fair. I was like, I don't know, 20, 20, maybe two, 20, like three. Like I was still like young in the yeah, sense yeah, like yeah. I'm not too worried about the fact that I'm trying new things. But at the same time, I got so bored, like not doing like anything. And then I didn't really want to go do my master's. And then I deferred the entry for my master's because like I also met Fadi. And then Fadi was like, all right, okay, cool. Like literally, I think the interview was like maybe 10 minutes <laughs> or, mm-hmm. or, or less. He's like, can you do this? Da, 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 da. And I was like, yes. I was like, okay, come next week. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. So, see, so yeah, it was fun, and then I deferred my so LSE entry. Could I? Could I? Yeah. Could could we just like? I would imagine that Reem seems like a person in your life that really changed your yeah. your future. She seems like even how you describe her, yeah, and the choices that you made. So her and obviously Fadi with your first choice, uh, not first choice, but with your transition to uh, working in the region. Yeah, and then from there, I'd love it if you scribe out like because I remember we met years ago when you were. Doing yellow as a yeah. payments processor, Bitcoin payments processor. I think this is the first time we met. Yeah, yeah, that was the yeah, first time we met. Yeah, yeah. Exactly, exactly. I think I was. I think we were doing a product demo. You gave me like point one Bitcoin at some oh, point. Okay, so I'm like, cool. now it's worth it. Anyway, besides the point, I'm curious. Yeah, so like the role sounds entrepreneurial, and that allowed you to just suddenly be allow your curiosity guide you to crypto. How did you navigate to get to? you know, from yellow to eventually what is Bit Oasis. Yeah, I think working with Fadi, honestly, is really the environment more than anything else that like makes you, it's a different way of doing work, very entrepreneurial, but also like the fact that you're meeting different people doing interesting things, start kind of opening up, you know, like your eyes or like, you know, different kind of windows in your mind, right? Mm. To like kind of see things in a different perspective. And also as part of that job, like I had that kind of flexibility to also look into different things. Like I was doing my job, but at the same time, like figuring out what these guys are doing and, you know, reading those, like, I don't know, like reports, working with the Wamda team on like, you know, bits and pieces and and, and seeing what's interesting out there. And, and that was actually, like you said, like the beginning of the path, essentially. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so I got interested in Bitcoin around 2013 or 14. So it was like almost like two years working with, you know, after working with, with Fadi. I was still working with Fadi full-time at that point. It was like a really kind of random way how I got into Bitcoin. So I spent some time on like tech forums and like Reddit and stuff like that. And then someone was had this post about like this anarchist, you know, currency that is going to take over, you know, the world. And at that point, the narrative was very, like, anarchist in in, in that way, right? That's like anti-government, blah, 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 all of that. I, I don't think Bitcoin is necessarily that. But but that narrative still exists to some extent, I yeah. would say. And um, I was like, whoa, okay, that's a crazy concept. What are these guys talking about? This sounds like a scam. But I kept kind of, like, you know, reading. And, and at that point, I think around 2014, there was, like, another price crash but it was all like with those news, uh, you know, like the crash and the price, um, you know, news was was on like the mainstream media. So it almost kind of like pulled me back to start kind of reading more on Bitcoin as well. And then I read the white paper and then I realized, oh, actually, you know, there, there is an actual technical foundation. Like there is an actual technical innovation there. Like it's not what those crazy people on Reddit say it is. And then I think when I started kind of digging deeper into the fundamentals and like searching for people who are neutral, balanced, but talk about it from a technical, you know, innovation perspective. So when I started kind of following those people more, you know, on Twitter and some of those tech forums, you know, that's when you start realizing, all right, actually there's something more behind it. And then at that point, I think my my, my thinking was, this is a crazy idea, right? Like, is there going to be like one currency on the internet that takes over the world well, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe not, but it's a crazy idea still. It's, it's, it's a possibility. But then if that's like your like maximum, you know, like let's say craziest exactly outcome, but then like at the minimum, it's going to completely transform financial services. It's almost like a binary type of change. Like it's equally transformation. Like in my mind, like what it, what it could be at a maximum level and what it could be at minimum level is is equally insane. Yeah. So so then 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 I have to be part of this. Like it, it was that kind of thing that like wow. uh, like it, it's 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 really transformational in the sense that like if you go through all the scenarios of what it could be, it, it's 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 crazy at all fronts. So I was like, okay, I want to be part of this. And then I remember like 
okay, I want to be part of this. What I'm going to do, I need to buy Bitcoin because now I read so much about it. I understand how it works, but I, I want to try it. Like, I, And I like, um, I'm very kind of experimental in doing things. Like, I, I like the theory part, but like I, at what point I get tired of it and like I need to like start kind of, you know, doing things. And I couldn't find anyone to buy Bitcoin from. So that's how I got actually connected to David, who I started like yellow pay with yeah, at that yeah, point. Because yeah, yeah. uh, one of my friends uh, was like, oh, you want to buy Bitcoin? I've got a friend that is actually based in Toronto. He's into Bitcoin. So maybe I can connect you guys and he can sell you some Bitcoin. So I bought my first Bitcoin. It was like around $100 at that point from David. And he was like, all right, you know, take some Bitcoin. If you want to buy more, let me know. Uh, and then I started using it. I was like, whoa, okay, this thing actually works. And then I got so excited about it. We started a meetup group in Amman, a meetup group in Dubai. David moved back to the region. We started a, a meetup group in, in Beirut. And like people were just like so interested in it, especially in Amman, by the way. Like, um, you know, Amman Tech Tuesdays with, with Fa'ad yeah, Jairus yeah, as yeah, well. Yeah. Lots of people came and I think we had like around 90 people or something. And, and that was like back in 2014. Uh, so obviously the community is much, much, much bigger right now. At that point, you know, David and I were like, okay, should we do something? Should we not do something? And and I wasn't like fully full-time on Yellow Pay at that point. I think I was really kind of almost like it's an, an opportunity for me to see what it looks like if we build a product and, and like understand kind of like the, you know, the technicalities of the mechanics, uh, you know, behind it. But I wasn't like 100% sold on the idea that we should do a B2B product before the B2C product. Because when I got into Bitcoin, for me as an individual, the first need was like, I want to buy Bitcoin. My first, you know, need wasn't like, you know, I, I want to pay on Amazon using, like, so that yeah. becomes afterwards. Um, so anyway, like we started like Yellow Pay, but then I wasn't like kind of fully full-time on it. I was still super keen on the idea of doing a B2C product versus B2B. And then through other meetup groups, I met like some of my existing co-founders um, and then, you know, kind of bit of wasteless. Uh, got launched, but that's like a whole different story of how it was. Yeah, I want to hear. I want to hear it because I know. Look, I know the journey has been a rock, like roller coaster. To be honest, yeah, with yeah, you. yeah, yeah. Especially with the the volatility of Bitcoin itself, but let alone the fact that it's such a heavily uh, contested, uh, let's say, solution, and governments are you know still coming to terms with it. Um, but yeah, tell us. So we did a, a Bitcoin event. I can't remember. It was like maybe 2015 at that point or, or something of, of that, or so maybe late 2014. And then uh, I met someone who um, knows, uh, so, so we're three co-founders. So it's myself, uh, Daniel, my CTO, and then third co-founder is Tarek. He actually sits on the board. So he was like our first, I would say, kind of more like angel, founding angel investor uh, versus like an operating, you know, kind of full-time, mm -hmm. you know, uh, uh, founder. But at that point, actually, you know, what, what we've all agreed on is like, we'll, we'll all come, you know, full-time at, at like different times before we raise. At that point, Tark and Daniel uh, met in San Francisco. Uh, so like, Tark is based in the U.S. Daniel at that point was actually based in San Francisco as well. And they started kind of like toying with the idea of like building a wallet, like a consumer product. But they didn't know particularly where it should be launched and, and how it should look like and, and all of that. And then I met Tarek. And then, you know, Tarek is originally Middle Eastern, so it's Jordanian, like I'm Jordanian. And then I met with them and I was like, oh, what are you guys are doing? And they're like, okay, so we have this like super like MVP, you know, of a wallet. Um, you know, we're, we're trying to kind of figure out what to do with it and all of that. And I was like, you know, guys, it sounds like pretty cool. I was part of a, a, a startup that, you know, we were doing like B2B and I didn't think that was like a great, you know, thing. Here's what we can do. How about we like bring this to the Middle East? We all partner up together and then we start, you know, like bit oasis or we'll have bit oasis. And but it's not a wallet. It has to be an exchange. And we're going to build an exchange, you know, build that infrastructure. People can buy and sell, like bring crypto to the Middle East, essentially. And they're like, OK, cool idea. We'll all partner up together. It actually really took us like probably six months back and forth, like figuring out how it should look like. What are we going to do? Who's going to do what? You know, to some extent that was clear, but it took us some time to kind of get into that, like, okay, you know, can we work together or not? And then we're like, okay, cool, let's do it. Uh, and then we launched the wallet. Obviously, we've realized that what people want is not a wallet. They want to buy and sell and they want to like, you know, trade and, you know, all of the stuff they're doing right now. And then I remember like figuring out like with our you know, lawyer, how can we do it? How, how can it be done in a way where like you're not kind of stepping on the wrong side of the, you know, the regulation. There wasn't much of a regulation at that point on like crypto assets. So we found a way where essentially, you know, 
you're not like a depository business in in some sense where like you know you're 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 financially regulated but we still th- thought of ourselves as a financial services company because eventually we will be regulated as such which is the licenses that we just got right now yeah. in terms of financial permissions so amazing uh yeah it's like years a, later you know yeah, like yeah exactly but all throughout that journey we were like liaising closely with you know the regulators understanding what their concerns are You know, we were doing like KYC, AML, like, you know, controls internally from day one. So like the risks were mitigated in the way that regulators will expect us to do it. And I think that what provides them a lot of comfort to still allow Bit Oasis to, you know, kind of grow and all of that. Yeah, but there um, were moments I, I know that were like scary ones or like, you know, let's say they, they call it the valleys of death. But like you were like had to cross some of those things, right? Yeah, I think every startup does like in the first couple of years. And I think with us, all right, you know. Every you, startup does, but you're you're going in a in a in a even sector more that's even more. Yeah, 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 exactly. yeah, yeah. It's, it's definitely yeah, 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 hundred yeah, percent. So it's like it's that, but then times three or like <laughs> exactly. times, I don't know, ten maybe. You know? <laughs> you know, one thing that we were like maybe talking about, you know, just before you know uh, doing the podcast, and I think we've probably discussed it in like um, some of the, like other meetings before. Yeah. Like as a sole founder, that that was very very tough. But I think honestly, like there's a big part in terms of like, you know, myself as a founder in this case, but like founders, like they, they are the ones that kind of make things happen at the end of the day because you can easily, the reasonable decision is to pack up your stuff and say, okay, we've tried, great, let's move on. Mm-hmm. That's actually, in almost every case where the startup is going through like a, you know, a value, value of like death, death or whatever, the, the really reasonable thing is to just like pack up and go, right? Because like, why are you putting yourself... <laughs> <laughs> this situation yeah yeah but it's almost like you know that's why it's a cliche i know but i actually really fully believe in it like founders are not reasonable it's, it's true they're actually not reasonable and to some extent it works very well in those situations where there's adversity but in situations where there is like you know kind of fluffy expectations and all of that like that same trait of being unreasonable Like, it's also in that yeah, situation yeah, yeah, yeah. as well. Like, delusional, uh, <laughs> delusional, like, delusional, expectations, yeah. Like, you're delusional ambition. in both scenarios, <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> But that, like, uh, trait works very well in adversity. But I think that's what makes, you know, founders resilient and, you know, they persevere. And that's what makes companies successful. So I think... I think that's what makes the best founders go through Being this, delusional, yeah. I think. Yeah, yeah. I know it's it's very, uh, um, how do you say, like what I'm saying, like probably it's not it's the extreme. mainstream and controversial, yeah, but extreme. it's actually you being delusional is what makes a startup. Like the more, okay, not like, you know, we work Adam type of delusion. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> but, you know, you still have to be self-aware. So I think if you couple self-awareness. Oh, but like Elon like, Musk, you know, SpaceX and yeah. Tesla and all these things. I mean, he had to think really like outside, like nobody will ever comprehend that level no. of, of uh Yeah. Of delusion, let's say, if you want to use the word there. But. Uh, exactly. Um, uh, someone maybe needs to kind of coin that term in the context of a founder because it's like delusion has like also a bad rap. Yeah, it's not about the <laughs> negative side of it. Yeah, but it's... Um, okay, so yeah, so you had to go... That. Yeah, you had to go through... And you were a solo... F- well, you said you had founders, but I mean, you essentially are effectively a solo uh, founder in the journey, right? So you had to kind of navigate those things by yourself to a certain extent. Um, and I know I think was... we also had a great team. I really have to say, like we have really strong team members that also, to some extent, have very similar traits that I that I have. Yeah. It's like scrappy, persevere, resilient, uh, you know, resourceful in the sense how you approach problems. And uh, I don't know if it's like a product of me being as a founder like that that they ultimately that became like a company trait yeah. that we have. Uh, but also, I feel like people who are alike end up working together and they click in a work environment. So, so I'm also thankful of the fact that like within our our like management team, because now we've got actually a management team, so it's like a lot more standardized. There are like people who are experienced, but also like scrappy in that sense. Uh, yeah. So it's culture that you've built. A culture. That, yeah, yeah. I guess, you know, one of the things that investors, I guess, I'd love to bring up the subject of investors at some point. But mm. like one of the things that uh, that I think is interesting is timing, right? So you were early. Yeah, we you know, were If early. you think about it today, you're really early, right? Yeah, so, we were. So it's also a bit on the delusional side, right? Where you have to go, you have to, you know, you you have to persevere until the timing is right. And I think, um, you know, investors have to have to actually buy into the story also on timing. So um, that journey, I'd like you to, love you to describe it out, like how it was, because you do have some pretty interesting investors outside of the region in your in your cap table. 
Um, you had to be super resourceful, I'm sure, to manage, to navigate. I, I think at some point, if you don't mind me saying that you were profitable, that you allowed that, that allowed you to continue to sustain yourself. The question is more around like when you went about the fundraising side, like how was that experience for you? Because it's been years, right? And now yeah. it seems to be a bit, you can see through the clouds, you know, you can see, you know, light in the tunnel kind of thing. You know, at the point where we've realized that we're early, it's almost like I had to flip our operating model to optimize for profitability until we get to a chance where it is the right timing and mm. then do like kind of big fundraise, which is almost kind of like where we are right now. Yeah, the environment... That was, sorry, that was a function of you not finding that access to too much capital. So you had to say, okay, there's not enough funding available for this space. I need to figure out how to be profitable or at least optimize for that. Yeah, it was it was different things. So it was a situation of bear market, right? Because mm -hmm. like crypto goes into those cycles, right? Yeah. We're like extended, like, you know, crypto winter and then like two quarters of like craziness, which is kind of what we're in right now. Yeah. The, the different things that I realized, yeah, yes, we're early, but... Uh, being early, if you can uh, survive in that period, becomes an advantage because yeah. you've learned a lot. You have a solid, you know, platform. You've invested in like your team, your technology, and 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 actually, to some extent, we have that compared to some of the people that are just like kind of starting out right now. But only if you can survive long enough, right? When we got to a point where like, all right, let's do another fundraisers, like around the bear market, maybe 2019, etc. It's just like people were not excited. Like with crypto, the narrative is very important because it's not like e-commerce where there's always demand. Like it's not that kind of like more mainstream uh, where a lot of investors get what you do. Uh, it's almost like, you know, you have few investors that understand that space very well. Not even just in the region, I think like internationally for, for the longest time. Now, obviously, you see a lot more people obviously getting into the space like internationally and all of that. But at that point, it was... It was a function of, okay, we're early, uh, it's a bear market. And then uh, we were always at the cross-section of, you know, crypto, which is niche, and then Middle East, which is, you know, for international investors. Yeah. When you put this combination together, you're like, what? <laughs> <laughs> That's so true. That's so true. And like, crypto in the Middle East? <laughs> So, uh, so, so now it's a different story because, you know, like the numbers are different. We're different, you know, like I, I think there's uh, there's excitement around. But you got funding before 2019 yeah, from international, international Yeah, yeah guys. we did from international. Yeah, yeah, like really great names like Pantera Capital Digital Currency Group. Uh, you know, their LPs are, uh, yeah, you know, Benchmark, uh, Fortress, uh, you know, Capital. Yeah. Like, so, so like, you know, great investors. And by the way, they came early and... They're, they're, they're continuing to be happy to, to back us. It's almost like for them, they know the crypto story. It's a long-term play. Um, you know, obviously they've diversified and invested in like so many other regions and, you know, all of that. But they're still happy to continue backing us. And until now, you know, uh, one of them is actually on the board as well, Pantera Capital. They always add value and, and they understand the adoption cycle in, in, in general when it comes to crypto. So I think is if, if you're a founder who's building in a niche market, in an emerging technology, emerging market as well, like geographically, like you really need to have investors that strongly buy into the story. But then long-term investors, which is sometimes a bit hard to find in the VC, you know, space. It's totally hard to find. Everyone yeah, wants to hard, see hockey, hockey yeah. stick growth from the get-go. Yeah. There's not much patient capital. But in crypto, available. by the way, it's always like, you know, they call it, uh, it's funny, I think people in crypto are like one of a kind because uh, they, they go through like, you know, those, winters and like summers and um, there's this term that people call like diamond hands and in, in, in the sense like you know you're buying bitcoin but you're not never selling it when like you go into a bear market because you you know that you're going to like reap the rewards at some point when like there's a bull market and i think like investors in the space follow the same you know logic is like this is a long-term play okay you know like we're still early in the adoption cycle but Oasis will have its time, which kind of what we're in right now. But, you know, back in, let's say, 2017, when they've like invested, it's like, OK, we invest in infrastructure. We think she's going to get to a point she survived to once she gets into that stage. And we think we're backing the right founder. And and I think um, it's a very it's a very different way of operating to like, for example, if you're running Kareem uh, or if you're running e-commerce, where like the demand is there and yeah. you're in a mature market and you're like, I don't know, like competing. Like the dynamics is very different. Yeah. Um, right now we're seeing more competition obviously coming to the market and all of that. So I think the operating model will change eventually. But I think having that, 
agility is almost like mental plasticity, right? Like as as a founder is like, okay, so now we're in this site or part of the market cycle. You change a different operating model. Now we're in a stage where there's like, you know, the narrative, the hype, the da, 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 da. You, you change your operating model accordingly. So, so that's something I had to, I, I had to learn actually. That's it interesting. Yeah, it, it wasn't like super easy, but I had to learn it. Yeah. yeah, but what I appreciate is like, to your point, like, you know, if you take long-term views, you're really backing that long-term potential. If you're too focused on the transaction, the short-term gains, as an investor, you, you're you going to miss these opportunities because they're going to come, uh, and I think, more often than not. But you had obviously Fadi come in, which yeah. is an amazing uh, transition from working there to like getting funded <laughs> by him. I know he's a big fan. So, yeah. and Faris, I think, is also very, yeah. very much into Bitcoin and crypto. Yeah. When you think about the whole fundraising, just a side topic, but like in terms of in terms of your learnings in the process and what you would do, not differently, but maybe like what you look for, you know, from an investor and these type of things. Like, what do you think you've learned, or what do you think? advice do you have for the for the founder now let's say going out to raise yeah um many things <laughs> <laughs> it's almost like you need a, a different episode uh, altogether yeah, for that I know, I know. um I, I think your choice of founder uh, your choice of investors also depend on your industry so so yeah. i think understanding your industry and who's like really in it and believes uh, in 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 your story and your market and your product, like this is very very important. Yeah. Because you want people to back you, but then you want people to also believe in in what you do. It, it sounds cliche, but it's actually very important. For fundraising and having someone on your cap table and have someone kind of back you, especially if they have a board seat and you know someone that you're working with, in that way, it's a form of partnership. Yeah. Whatever that form of partnership is, if you if you have someone who doesn't kind of believe, you know, in it. They're not gonna be invested in it. Like they're they're just like probably okay. They give you some money, give a cash, but then you know you probably can raise that cash from someone else. Like you can really maximize the value you get from you know that partner if you have someone who really believes you know in you. It's almost kind of back to the leverage. Yeah, you know, I was about right? to say yeah, exactly <laughs> leverage, leverage point. Question. It really changes things. Uh, uh, now is that that's like easy to say, but I guess you know founders will probably have the question is like, but then how do you do that? Invest in relationships early. I, I think one advice that investors say that like founders have to take very seriously is like you really need to invest in relationships before you fundraise not because okay so from an investor standpoint obviously they want to see progress but from a founder perspective you want to understand your investor why are they investing do they believe in you do you think they're going to help you so so that's why it's like um, you know Investors are looking for one thing, but you're also, as a founder, assessing them on a different scale. Like, you know, is that the right partner? You know, et cetera, et cetera. So in, investing in relationships are definitely important. Someone that believes in you, uh, someone that believes in your business. Um, it's very important also to have that click. Chemistry. Yeah. Because if you don't, you know, if it's a great name, right, but you don't get along with that person who's going to, I don't know, sit on your board or give you that check and... And let's say someone who is like you're going to work closely with. It's not someone kind of writing you a small check or something like that. You don't get along with them. You're you're going to clash. And and as a founder, you don't have time for these things. Like you have to focus on your business. Especially because you know? it's years. Yeah, you're going to be with them for for years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I guess now that you have your regulation, which I know took time, and I know I I I know that at some point, let's say on the banking side, right? You had some banks like literally close the door at some point in your journey, right? How did you navigate that? I'm actually curious. To <laughs> I don't even that, know. <laughs> yeah, because that's like, that's like, that I have so much. So I, I here's the thing, like I have so much respect for you. I don't want to, I don't want to make this, I don't want to promote you too much because that's not, that's not part of the concept. But I, I want to say like, it's like, I just remember meeting you on several occasions. There is a side to this that's kind of ugly where people want to see others fail, right? They, they're like against these people who are trying to change you know the the world or the region, and and I think persistence is one thing, but the fact that you were like literally had people like closing bank accounts or making your life like inoperable, and you still operated, and you still went through it. Like for me, that like that that indicator is just like uh, is so rare. Like it's it's like the delusion, right? Like the banks shut you down, and you're still like continuing. You know, so I I just want to highlight that because I feel like it's so under sold like that part of your journey and uh, maybe i want to talk about it if you don't mind just sharing like or at least what emotionally or 
team culture when they see this happening? Like, what do you? How do you navigate that? Yeah. Like, what do you do? It, it almost kind of got to a point where, like, if someone shuts the door, it's like it's a challenge. Like, no, 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 you're shutting the door. We're gonna keep going. Mm. <laughs> it's like, it's really, it's 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 almost like they take joy. <laughs> Yeah, you're ready to go. It's like fight or flight. I'm ready to fight. Let's go. Yeah, yeah, Like, literally, we have fighters on the team. It almost gets to a point where, like, guys, like, seriously, please, like, you know, like, uh, tone it down. Like, this is a real problem, right? And they're like, no, 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 we can do this. And, and like, immediately, they go into problem-solving, you know, mode. And I think part of it is probably because, you know, I do that as well. It almost gets to a point where I think they're delusional. (laughs) 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 You're using delusional a lot today. So. <laughs> <laughs> but I think ultimately what happened is like it became became a culture thing. It's important for startups to have that because you want to make sure you're resourceful and your team is resourceful and and you can't be solving all problems, right? It really got to a stage where like, okay, you know, like you're yeah, fighting I, all fronts. Like there could be a case where I'm like sitting and I'm like, oh my God, the bank shut us down. Uh, I need to look for another job. Uh, right, you know, like no. like that. So you're saying you you met. So that's so interesting because the culture you ingrained kind of stems from your upbringing, which we talked about, like that whole rebellious <laughs> uh, side, which is really cool that it stems now. Like if you look at your firm, it's like you've kind of ingrained that sort of in the fabric of the company, which yeah. which is a competitive advantage. Yeah. No. Now we like. I mean, um, for us, it's like uh no we're gonna like you know we're gonna continue it's like you know better oasis is here to stay like, yeah you know it's, it's, it is delusional <laughs> <If you ask laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> so okay so now 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 that delusion's over you have the license in your hand right like when you look at like the future what do you think is uh what do you what inspires you what are you motivated by what's like maybe a little bit about that on the firm side before we go into the personal one like what what are you driven now by um, I mean, there are different things. Just actually one point on like yeah. what made you persevere. Uh, there are times where actually it was the team. It was just like seeing the team, how like they're persistently wanting to. You know, there were times where like, oh my God, what are we doing? Like, honestly, like I'll just sit down on my own and like, what are we doing? And then I come to the office and like people coming up with solutions and telling me what to do. And it's hard to stop Yeah. when you have a team telling you you need to keep going. And those are like the lows, right? And then there are times where, like, I do that push, that pushing. It's like, no, guys, you know, we need, like, more solutions. Like, you know, you need to think harder and, you know, stuff like that. But then the main, main point is the customer demand, like, the user demand. Like, people want this. Mm. And it's almost always the thing that, like, guys, what we do makes sense, right? It makes sense. But let's find a way where we can do it, where, you know, we continue until things get in the right place, which is like, you know, the licensing and some of the stuff that we're doing right now. I, I think like crypto is here to stay. And I think it would really change, you know, banking, financial services, payments. I'm, I'm more kind of big on that idea. I know there's like lots of other innovation happening, you know, in real estate, tokenizing, you know, assets and all of that. And I think ultimately we'll get to that stage. But it's really the like the fintech or the financial services part of things that I'm like excited about. And, you know, obviously for us, we want to be like the biggest in the region, but I would say even outside of Arab speaking countries. So, you know, we're really looking at Turkey. We're looking at Pakistan. I think Asia is, is definitely interesting versus like, you know, Europe or the U.S. and any and of that. And, and this industry is so early that like, you know, you being an exchange is great for now, but you're not going to continue being an exchange. Like in a couple of years from the infrastructure, you're going to go into the application layer, right? You're going to start kind of focusing on verticals that are important for customer adoption. And that's, I think, where it gets interesting, where it's almost you create like a fintech super app. And it's also a cliche like word, but cliche words are actually important because it delivers, you know, the idea directly. But it's almost like you have your BitOasis app. And then from there, you can invest in crypto. You can invest in, you know, tokenized securities or, or whatever that like that is going to evolve into the space. You can do payments. Uh, it's almost like your, your mini bank account, but it's all kind of powered, you know, by crypto. And I think that's very, uh, for, for me, that's definitely kind of how I see BitOasis is like really evolving from an exchange into like an app that people use on a daily basis. We ultimately can't like be ahead of how the market is evolving. You evolve with the market. One thing, by the way, I've learned is the strongest factor to your success is not your investors. It's not, well, okay, you, you know, your investors, your team, and all of that plays a big part. It's the market. Like the market decides whether you're going to win or lose. The market decides at what point you're going to roll out this product. The market decides whether your technology is mature or not. 
it's always it's almost like I feel like you know we have different stakeholders and then in my mind I, I created that stakeholder it's almost like I painted a picture of that person and how they look like it's called the market and it's almost like I always kind of have a conversation okay so what does the market think and and and, and that's why I think it's like it's really the biggest deciding factor of when to roll a product when to evolve as a company when when you know all of that ultimately we evolve with the space and the consumer adoption and what the market votes as ready and you know for me that's like my north star but ultimately how this industry is moving will definitely be growing from an exchange into like the application part of things where essentially people are using crypto whether they know it's crypto or not that's like a you know a different story in terms of how the applications are built mm. but i really do think that like it'll, it'll really transform um you know how we work with like financial service applications or like in our relationship with money and banks. Yeah, that's what an, I mean, it sounds like you're literally are scratching the surface right now. So the potential is huge. I don't want to go too much into it, but I saw a tweet um, on Coinbase and how Coinbase could be the biggest bank eventually because it has a lot of people's net worth right now tied to crypto sitting there in accounts and now they can issue cards and do other things that can suddenly allow them to to become a fintech play that's beyond just an exchange, which I see like this whole super app concept. So maybe like we'll end it with a couple of things. Like if you had to, are there any books that you're like, okay, you know, I read, I think this is a book that really helped me through shaping whatever I'm doing or, or yeah, maybe with that. Um, There are many books. Uh, The one that comes to mind that I read uh, quite recently, I think like, um, it wasn't the last one that I read, but a couple of months back. Um, the one for the founder of Netflix is called The No Rule Rule. Uh, so it's about the culture of Netflix and and how, like, they don't actually, they created this environment because, like, there isn't, like, set rules. Like, people ultimately fall back to operate in a way that is, you know, productive. They seek, like, obviously the best for the company and, like, themselves. It almost reminded me of how, like, my parents actually raised us, where there were very minimal rules. Like, there were guiding rules. And then everything else was... You, you just figure it out within those, yeah. you know, frameworks. So the no rule rule uh, for the founder good. of Netflix is good. Um, I think that's like the one that I remember lately that I read. There are a couple of others. No, let's stick with that. Let's stick yeah. with that. <laughs> I do like that. I'm actually going to pick it up after, yeah. after this episode. But then, the, you know, when I think about, when you think about like, let's say legacy or purpose now on a personal level and you think like, okay, I'm, you're, this is what I love about founders. Even for me, it's like, you know, you're on a mission to really impact people's lives. Do you ever think about that? Like, or is it more like your head down? What do you think about purpose? What do you think about legacy and meaning like that? A uh, very good question. I think it's work in progress. It's a tricky one because it also changes with the, with the maturity of you as a person. And I feel like often you start companies because you're excited about a technology, you're excited about a specific market need. For me, it, it really started as a, excitement about this technology and space, almost like as an enthusiast. I never started a company or wanted to become a founder. I mean, even at this stage, you know, I can say, okay, you know, the social impact and impacting people's lives, but it's hard to think about that when you start a company because you're still like in, you know, like the piping part where like, you know, the product and all of that. But ultimately for me, impact comes from scale. Impact obviously comes from putting out a product that improves people's lives. And then there's multiple ways, obviously, how you can drive impact. But but in my mind, you know, impact is a great product plus scale, right? And uh, that's something I continuously kind of think about in, obviously, in light of what we do in terms of crypto. And then how does that look like, especially in the region that we're in versus like in the US and, you know, other markets. Um, and I really have to say it's, it's work in progress. But for me, in terms of legacy, you know, because I've, I've, I've worked in different fields and I think ultimately what I wanted to also, you know, do is what is like the best environment for me to to to, to have that, to drive that impact and like almost kind of like do something that I really enjoy, but at the same time impact people around me and have that legacy. I don't know exactly what that legacy is and will be. It always changes. Yeah. But for me, one thing that I know for sure uh, you know, at that point, because I'm like in my early 30s, at least I've decided the environment and the setting is really like building products, businesses, working with like smart people, building teams, how it looks like legacy, you know, I don't know, five or 10 years from now is a bit hard to say, but I yeah, think yeah. that's that's the medium, at least. No, I love that. 
I love that. That's a great way to end this uh, this thing. But look, I, I had a blast. I mean, a lot of blasts. I, I really enjoyed learning about your journey. Thank you. Thanks, Amir. Thank you so much. Thanks. <laughs> Happy to be here. Thanks for tuning in. We hope you were able to take away some valuable insights on this episode. Subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast listening app and please don't forget to leave us a review and share it with your friends. The Middle East has a new story to tell and this is From Mina to the World. <laughs>